No, you can't. We're doing a segment Sorry, where stop. it's called Artists Under Stress, <laughs> where we deny them something that they believe is essential, <laughs> and we make them answer questions about poets. I'm John Mejias in New York. I'm Zach Smith in uh, Los Angeles. And this is Weed Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... We all are living in this soup. It's not authentic to any of us because it's a production that's been going on for millennia. This week I traveled to upstate New York where I visited the home of Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly. Talking about... Rampant sin, inescapable evil, things like that. Things that can't be overcome, like putting things in a biblical term. Well, I grew up in South Carolina, which has been in everyone's consciousness quite a lot. I lived in South Carolina until I was 16, and then my parents moved to Iowa, so I did my last two years of high school in Iowa. I just forgave my parents for that last year. But then after, after that, I went to college in Minnesota. That's where Pat and I met eventually. But yeah, growing up in South Carolina was very interesting. What was so interesting about it? Good well, question. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Well, South Carolina, certainly in comparison to Iowa, where, where we moved to, South Carolina is a very racially diverse place. It's not a very religiously diverse place, as in everybody, black or white, went to church. You know, so I didn't... I didn't. I basically didn't know any non-practicing Christians when I was a kid, so that part of the culture was quite uniform. But it was considerably more economically diverse, if you want to put it kind of coldly like that, than the Midwest is, or certainly it is out here. There's kind of a, a depth to poverty in the South that's that I haven't seen any other places that I've lived. Yeah, but, you know, my perceptions of the South are kind of a kid's perceptions because I lived there until I was 16. So when you were, like, 10 years old, you you weren't walking around like, I'm in the South. It's like this. Yeah. It's just natural. (laughs) It wasn't until you left the South to you were like, oh, that was a thing. Yeah, when I went to my first week in high school in Iowa, I was walking around saying, hey, y'all. And people would come up to me in the hallway and say, (laughs) say something. I'd be like, what do you mean, say something? (laughs) So I learned to drop that. Were your parents, like, part of your family, like, like were they Southerners? Were they South Carolina Christians? Were they, mm-hmm. or they, like, were you, like, grew up kind of apart from that, or what? Well, so my mom is a North Carolinian, so her family is, they were in North Carolina for centuries and never learned how to read or write, so <laughs> good for them, I guess. But, um, which is to say that they were just poor farmers, and grew tobacco, but my dad was from the Midwest, so when I was 16, my parents, one of the big things that was a culture in the South was teenage drinking, so like every year, like a couple kids from my high school would die in like traffic accidents. Every year? Yeah, every year. In fact, after we moved, there were several kids that I knew from church that were killed because they were driving their Jeep when they were drunk back from homecoming or something. And and it was so, that was one of the parts of this Southern culture that my parents decided to just up and leave. 
Before you died. Before I died. <laughs> well, your work, your art is like hyper literate. Like it's about reading and, and it's about writing and, and it makes a lot of literary references. Did you, did you develop that interest like in reaction to how you grew up or, is, or they're unrelated or how did you interact with the stuff that would later become your uh, subject matter when you were younger? Well, I think no matter where I grew up, I would have been what I was, which was like a very inwardly oriented kid, like just into kind of reading and imaginary play. But isn't some of that because of your parents? I mean, your parents were historians. Yeah, my, my parents are, they were very into education and reading and my dad's an educator, and my mom was too, so... So your mom could read. Oh, yes. My mom could read. In fact, <laughs> so... Earlier, it sounded like you were saying your mom couldn't read. <laughs> oh, my God. We can't so let that... My mom's, my mom's grandfather couldn't read or write, but her mother could read and write and gra- graduated. I have one of my treasured possessions is her pen when she... She graduated second in her high school class, so she could read and write. But that was second in her high school class of seven people. So, what was the word for that you know, again? Because there's validatorian. Salutatorian. Salutatorian, not validatorian. Salutatorian. But so when my mom was in high school growing up in Raleigh, her father said to her, he took her hand and he said, Margaret Ellen, I just want you to know now that you're going to high school that you don't have to worry about getting good grades because I will always be here to take care of you. And you don't have to be smart because I'm your daddy and I won't let anything bad happen to you. Oh, no. And, but my mom was, my mom is, like, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but that, you know, that's Southern culture. And, of course, her dad died extremely young of a heart attack, so, like, it was complete baloney what he was saying. Yeah. But that's like, that's paternalism. I want a dad like that. I know to take your hand and say, Zach. I don't, you, you don't have to learn how to read, Zach. <laughs> you can do whatever you want and you don't have to ever worry about making a dime and I'm going to protect you. Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Call you. <laughs> He'll look rubbing his belly right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, just like fried chicken and yeah. I don't have to do anything. It sounds great. But we have to talk about art instead of that. So, okay, I see like a lot of credits for Mary Reed Kelly. And then Patrick Kelly is like always participating and helping out. But he does not get equal billing. But he's here in the studio. <laughs> so I want to I wanna hear about... How you've been erased from history, Patrick. Um, <laughs> tell us about, like, how do you decide who, uh, how to credit a piece, and what do you consider your role to be? I know you do the, a lot of the technical stuff, but... It's fitting you're asking that right now, because right now I'm plugging in John's computer. Yeah, the, the battery <laughs> died when on. Alert came on, and... We're, we're frantically plugging things. That's kind of what I do. <laughs> I'm sort of the AV guy. Well... I guess what we, how we work together has evolved a lot, is mm-hmm. the usual answer I say. Because when Mary first started doing video, it was kind of because I, was, I happened to be there. I was visiting her when she was still in grad school, 
I mean, I was visiting her all the time. We were, we were already married, but I went up there and she had been moving more and more. She can talk more about this, but moving more and more into text and textual pieces at the time being textual paintings. But I visited once and she had written this poem and she wanted to perform it. And so I had a camera with me and we decided to just set the camera up and have her perform the poem rather than it become some other kind of object. And like perform the poem rather than write the painting, write, yeah. the, write the poem on a piece of paper and right, call right. that the art. And, and like dress up for it. So you actually, that was the first time you, you and you, you did actually kind of go all out. You did the makeup and everything. And, and at the time, I was teaching full-time. At the time, I was teaching in Maryland at St. Mary's College. And we met when I was teaching at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. At the time, I was teaching full-time. And then when we started doing more video stuff, I was still teaching full-time. And so the way I was involved was sort of at the very end. I would shoot the work after Mary had written everything. And, you know, it was a little more frantic. But then... Over time, I guess, I became more involved earlier on. Like, I started being more... It seems like you've had creative imp- like input on some of the stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so on everything. So, do, how do you decide how to credit it? I mean, it's just like... Yeah, it's, it's a political decision, isn't it? Like, how you credit something. <laughs> and we have kind of experimented with it a little bit. At the beginning, yeah. we kind of straight up credit it as my work when Pat, when the work started to become more elaborate, we started crediting it as both of us. Not that you want to be tailoring your sales to everybody's misunderstanding wins, but like we got a lot of that. And I feel like people are just very, very resistant in the art world to collaborative work. And especially work that is collaborative yet it's not like Alora and Castilla where they they attribute everything, you know, 50-50 more or less. But we've chosen to kind of, we collaborate and Pat's always mentioned. However, we always put essentially my name first because I write the pieces and when we create the films, the text is the point of origin for every decision that we make. And all the characters are my concepts and and all the designs of the objects. I think authorship is the key word because like the original act that the whole work devolves from is an act of writing that I do by myself. It's kind of like he's the guitar player in the Mary Kelly band. I was going to say she's Chuck D and he's Flavor Flav. <laughs> like without Flavor Flav, it's not that. Yeah, Flavor Flav is extremely important. It's like early Bowie without Mick Ronson. <laughs> but then a Mick Ronson solo album, like nobody wants to hear that. Not that Pat is Mick Ronson's solo album. Yeah, Pat has his own work. Right. Uh, that I do, is not, but, but and the, in our collaboration, it sort of waxes and wanes a lot. Early on when Mary's writing, I'm not really participating except for just bouncing things off of me. Right. And I do really enjoy, you know, editing and stuff. But But then when we're shooting, I'm making almost all of the... Yeah you know, the sort of camera decisions and everything. Okay. And then, and I, and I, I guess I just, I get, I, I enjoy that. She gives me something she wants to do. 
So like today we went for a walk, basically sort of a discussion walk where we were talking about this next project we're going to do. And Mary came up with this main concept and then I sort of responded to Mm -hmm. it, you know, and add my own things and then sort of hone it into something that we can actually execute, you Mm -hmm. know, like something we can actually shoot and follow through with. So you're like the problem solver and she's like the the idea person. Oftentimes, yeah. It's pretty fair to say that Pat produces the work. Yeah, but I do make some points when we're shooting where it makes some decisions that are like... I think more and more you're making... The filmmaking right now is... It's maybe 50-50 like the directing, but it's probably tilting more towards you, Pat, because it's just... We're different types of filmmakers and... Because Pat's actually holding the camera when we're performing, I am working in the costume and Pat's working with the camera. So the decisions that actually end up in the film are a lot of the times Pat's ideas. And that has a lot to do with how things have changed. Like because we're working together from the very beginning now, I can actually plan ahead and anticipate what I'm going to be doing in post-production so that the shooting becomes much more, in a way, it kind of becomes more efficient because I'm thinking ahead right. and making decisions while we're shooting about what I'll be doing later rather than just like, okay, let's just shoot this and you know, not really thinking. I guess the, the issue of credits becomes a lot less fraught because you guys are in the same household. So yeah, no right. matter who's credited, right. it's all going to the same bank account. Um, That's so. true. Right, right. But honestly, I think sometimes people are a little weirded out by like a collaborative pair where one person isn't paying the other. Yeah. <laughs> we work together because we're romantically attached. You know, we're we're married. We, I know how that one goes. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure I know you do. Yeah. I don't know how, how. Well, then, Zach, like, what's what's your perspective on your creative collaboration with Mandy? Basically, if it's a porn movie, then, uh, you know, Mandy gets paid the girl rate and I get paid the guy rate. And uh, <laughs> and, and, and it doesn't really matter because we're all spending the same money. Mm-hmm. There are names and words for the different yeah. jobs that we have, whereas it, what it sounds like you guys are doing is like, I did some producing and I did some producing, and I did some directing and I did some directing. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels like, actually, it sounds like it's it's really fun. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. The kind of collaboration where you do something hand it over to somebody else and then they do their thing is one kind of collaboration. And then the kind where you discuss it and can talk about the same issues Uh is a different kind of collaboration. And in some ways it's riskier, but it's, you have a better chance of getting something that you wouldn't have seen from either of the two people participating. Maybe. I mean, when Mandy is a model in my painting, it still looks like one of my paintings. It doesn't look, you know, like it looks, whereas, a movie with one Cohen brother looks different than a movie with two Cohen brothers. Uh-huh. Like they're yeah. they're a different kind of thing. So it sounds like you guys are describing a collaboration that's increasingly becoming hard to describe or parse. Yeah, it's yeah. very hard to separate. The like, baton goes back every single day when we're right, and every and every situation where we are becoming where we're somehow made self-conscious of the fact of collaboration. Like if we went visit a school and talk and then like talk to students or something, every time it's like this weird negotiation to (laughs) explain, explain to people how messy it is. Like you just said, how there are many different kinds of collaboration 
and we move in between those different forms as we're working. I mean, generally, I get an email from a school somewhere saying they would like to invite me to come lecture. And then I have to write back and say, well, I would love to come lecture, but I do these lectures with my partner and he collaborates on the filmmaking and you have to bring both of us. (laughs) That's how we did this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So it's kind of weird, like negotiating with people. Like yeah, that. still, even like in art school, maybe especially in art schools, people just want to hear like the solo artist. No, but in, in our defense, you said that and then I looked it up and I looked into your website and I was like, oh, because on the surface yeah. you know, it was just you. But once I really yeah. took a deep dive, yeah. I realized. In the beginning, did you go out for a lot of grants that were like for women artists? You actually you know, I've, did, I don't didn't think you? I've ever gotten a gender specific grant. However, like for example... When I applied to like the Rome Prize, you can apply as a couple. And so I had to decide. But like when you look at historically who's gotten the Rome Prize, like it's 400 individuals and like one couple. So historically, you can deduce that couples do not get the Rome Prize. So I applied by myself. Mm -hmm. But of course, we both got to go. The Guggenheim was the same way. You can apply as a couple, but pairs very rarely get it. So I applied by myself, and we, of course, we shared the check. Yeah, we but, both applied. I mean, we were both like, worked on the application and everything. Yeah, we did. It's just, it was just easier. But, yeah, I mean, even, like, teaching positions, like, basically things in the art world, you're expected as, as an artist to present yourself as kind of either a lone wolf or, like, a capitalist wolf with like a studio of apprentices that you're paying yeah, like minion wages. Right. <laughs> it's an interesting time in that way because I, what you're supposed to f- do is establish a context where you're just like a 19th century painter. <laughs> you're, you're, you paint, you, you create individual works of art. Uh, they're discreet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a certain persona and whatever, and you're alone and then you establish that you're rebelling from the mold by making video. You're supposed to do both of those things. You're supposed to number one create yeah. a context where you're like an individual artist, which is a context that doesn't really isn't really like a necessarily the, the default context for artists these days. And then also establish that you're breaking that mold by not painting and by not working alone. Yeah. Even though like in the commercial world, filmmakers, like, they collaborate and don't work alone, like, all the right. time. But, like, creating this sort of, like, artificial, like, the art world, like, works on this, like, illusion that we are all sort of yeah. in the past and then goes, look at how we're breaking with the past. Right. <laughs> like, you need both. Like, you have to you have to be able to make both claims somehow uh, in, a, in a weird way. Yeah, I feel like we're doing a pretty bad job. <laughs> 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 Of covering all those bases. You're doing all right. I mean, a Guggenheim's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, and I just saw you at the Hammer, right? Yes, that's true. That was fun, right? That was good. That was you're doing that good, was great. right? That right? was great. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I guess you're right, Zach. <laughs> when you guys are making these films, though, I mean, you have other people that are actors, but is it essentially the two of you doing everything? Yep. It's yeah. Just us. That's we, crazy talk we really to me. Rarely there's work costumes. There's yeah. who's making these costumes? Me. Yep. With one well, exception, the exception was the 19th century ball gown for Sisyphus, which I didn't make. But that's but, the only exception. Um, I worked with a dressmaker because usually when I make the co- the costumes, I use this 
amazing product called Stitch Witch, which is like a strip of dry glue that when you iron it, it turns into hot glue. So you can like so glue a costume sewing. together. You don't have to sew it. It's, oh, it's wow. amazing stuff. But then so. a lot of it is just using like repurposed stuff. Yeah. Like scrubs and... So those World War I costumes, how, how did that happen? The World War I costumes, I, I got a bunch of... Actually, I, I did thrift store for that. And but then I re I cut everything and glued it back up with the stitch witch, and I got this great. Um, actually, the thing that really made all those costumes possible was there are these. I got these two volumes uh, from a bookstore that were designed for reenactors for German military enthusiasts, which you're like getting a little <laughs> close to the line of respectability there. I had to pick up some of those for like my gravity's rainbow drawings. Did you? And I was yeah. like, who else buys these books? Yeah, they're, exactly. Yeah, they're very, <laughs> uh, this, this press, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, luckily, so the, the books that I bought were pre-World War II. So, it wasn't Nazi stuff. Of course, a lot of the stuff, the, there's this a very iconic German uh, metal helmet that they developed in the First World War that they used in the Second World War. Right. It's, the same, it's the same helmet. I mean, and the profile is very iconic. And I actually got some plastic ones from like a, a Halloween costume warehouse. I mean, thank God for really weird war reenactors because right. we've, they've actually helped us out several times. Because, for example, yeah, when I was doing the Sisyphus dress... I was working with a dressmaker, and she said, okay, this is great. You need to get me a pattern for a dress from the 1850s. And I was like, fuck. And like, I half-heartedly opened up a tab on the browser and Google it, and lo and behold, it comes up right away. You can get dozens of Civil War-era dresses because of all the Civil War reenactors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they so all, like the all want to look like Scarlett O'Hara. So lines, off the front lines. Yeah. My dad's taken me to a few of those, right? Really? What era? My dad's a Civil War buff. Civil uh-huh. War. So he took me and showed me big places where the Battle of Antietam was and all that yeah, stuff. And we, yeah. we was watched. there a big Puerto Rican contingent in the Civil War? <laughs> there was not. There should have been. We would have won it much faster. I mean, yeah. <laughs> probably, yeah. How did, how did your dad get that kind of fascination? John's dad is a real dad. Yeah, like, I guess he's so. He's the daddest dad I've ever heard of. Yeah, like, reenactment stuff is like for hardcore He was dads. a cop, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Amen. he's always giving he advice. He was a Marine, he was a cop. He was a Marine, got plenty too. of advice. He made you go through fireman's test. I tell him about the firefighter's test in the car. So, but I have to ask, was he really into, in his reenacting, being a Union soldier or a Confederate no, soldier? No, he just observed the reenacting. Okay. I don't know why he wouldn't reenact. Probably he's too shy. He was reenacting being a civilian, which, <laughs> yeah. in my a opinion, bystander. That's, a pretty, yeah. that's a pretty good... I'm coming across as a very lazy person here in this interview. <laughs> which is a nice segue in, into this. Are you guys actually theater people? Were you in all the high school plays? No. Oh, my God, no. no. I never. No, I'm a classic introvert. You were a painter. Yeah. But these videos, you've got, you know, you got the makeup, you got costumes, you're talking. I'm strutting, but Pat is but the only person the that I have that to that do room, it in front you know? Your films do not have that thing that an actor has to do where you have to become the character enough that your delivery of the line is plausible right. as yeah. responding to someone else. Like, you have to yeah. be like, all right, I'm 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 Dave now, and I got to say this the way Dave would. You know, like, your, right. their recitations, like, a, like an opera or something, you know, like, Mm-hmm. It's not method acting. No, and and that kind of gets at how yeah we're not really that interested in sort of like you know naturalism cinema at all. It's That's not, pretty clear. 
<laughs> I do. Uh, we should like to talk about like what's actually in the the, the films. Uh, you know, the actual content of the work. So they're super stylized. They address a lot of like classical and historical themes, mm-hmm. and then they're they're built on these texts which are like full of these punning. They're really dense mm-hmm. texts, like full of puns and jokes and rhymes and. I mean, for me, the texts seem like almost like rock climbing where you hmm. you say one thing and then you're like, what is something yeah. I can reach from here that would also be weird? And then and then you kind of pull yeah. up to the deck. So it's, it's almost like each line is like something like what's within a stone's throw of this idea? And, and, and yeah. they sort of like they kind of meander forward like because as a, as a spectator, you're not like they're not uh, dramatic in the sense of, oh, what's going to happen next? You get on and you're just like, this is going to go where it goes, you know. And so each line seems to be offer a set of possibilities. And then the next line grabs onto a few of them and kind of crawls forward. I love that metaphor of the rock climbing, Zach. And I think you use this word yourself. And it's it's not like I'm going to throw rotten tomatoes at you for using it. But it's the word references. And people like to say, oh, your work is stacked with all these references. And it's true. There's all these idioms from literary works but I don't think of them as references. I think that's a very cold and academic word, and I feel like our Well, you're wrong, and we should fight. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the thing that I liked about your rock climbing metaphor is that it's like you put one hand somewhere, and then it's like the next hand could go anywhere within like a reasonable uh, circumference around that particular rock hold, and so it works by process of illusion, Illusion with an A, right. making different illusion it could be, jumping from a Shakespeare reference to a rhyme to a pun. And these all work by, a rhyme works by phone, sound-based. It's um, physical. Yeah, it's like a physical similarity. A literary reference might kind of poke into the part of your brain where like all your um, inherited language is stored and a pun will poke an entirely different part of your brain, you know, yoking two words which have no logical meaning together but have a phonemic um, oral similarity together. So it, I think it really works by illusion with an A, not by reference. Okay, it's like a dream logic. Yeah. Things go together in dreams because they have a similarity, but the kind of similarity isn't the kind that real-life logic has. Right. Yes. Cat rhymes with hat, so they end up in the same poem. Right. Yeah. But then cats also are shaped like a cat-shaped toaster, and so they, yeah, like, it's like (laughs) the different, you know. (laughs) No, that's great. Now you've got, okay, so now what are are we arguing about? Yeah, I'm very keen to I don't I don't think we're arguing. <laughs> but you said references, so well, like... Well, I mean, I guess I just used references because I wasn't smart enough to say illusions or... <laughs> well, you alluded to it. Uh-huh. Yeah, here um, we go. <laughs> no, I actually think that you are describing your process in a in an interesting way by say, saying it's an illusion because if you say reference, I think people get the, the impression of a reference like... You're going along telling your story, and then you go, oh, it's just like what George Bernard Shaw said, and you're just sort of showing off, or yeah. you're yeah. pulling something into your story to give right. it uh, a bigger resonance than it, yeah, than it deserves. It. Whereas <laughs> by describing it as illusion, the way you're describing it is your poems are kind of recording someone trying to think about a subject, mm-hmm. and the process of trying to think for anyone includes 
referring to outside things. Mm-hmm. Like, regardless of the difference between the, the word allusion and the word reference, your description of what you're doing records a more complicated process than what I think people think of when they go, oh, it's a reference. Well, I think one of the main themes of the work is the failure of individuality or the like pratfall of the individual into anonymity or cliche. Like oftentimes I think a character in one of our films might be like, for example, trying to express love or devotion, but they fail in actually doing so in, a, in an authentic way because you have to do that thing, at least in our films and actually in a lot of our lives, through language. And the fact is, language is a trap that we can't get out of and that we also didn't make. So, so whether my work is full of allusions or references, and really it's not that important to me which one it is, the fact is, is that Lewis Carroll helped make our language. Shakespeare helped make our language. NWA helped make our language. Memes make our language. We all are living in this soup that it's not authentic to any of us because it's a production that's been going on for millennia. And all we can do is use it as a tool and try to get it to work for us. But it's always a failure. It also seems like the characters that you choose are almost always, like, bragging or dramatizing their own situation. And it seems Mm -hmm. like that comes from a couple different things. Like, on the one hand, they're they're often allusions to classical characters, you know, who have Mm -hmm. some iconic status. And so Mm -hmm. they're bragging, even when they are expressing devotion or something, they're bragging about themselves. Because... They have that status in our minds, I guess, Mm -hmm. but also their inauthenticity is played up by the fact that, like you guys said before, you're not naturalistically acting. You guys put on, you put on a costume and you present what they're saying in this very speechy way. Yeah. It's almost like, I don't know if I believe what I'm about to say. I got to make sure I do, but (laughs) let me feel it out. Okay. In Hamlet, Ophelia feels like one of the only people that isn't full of herself. Yeah. Because she's refusing to speak in the language that is actually natural to nearly every character in Shakespeare plays or that play. She won't pun. She won't pun with Hamlet. Right. When he says, get thee to a nunnery and his head is in her lap, that's not funny to her. Yeah. But everyone else in that play, no matter, like Shakespeare writes, like obviously a huge range of people, but for some reason, the very elaborateness of their language they all seem to have this sort of boisterous pride that very few of them don't mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know now I'm thinking like, oh my God, I got to make sure I have my bases covered on this because I could be just full of shit. But it seems like the way that those characters are obliged to use language to fit into the format of those plays mm-hmm. makes them all seem like they're unbelievably proud of whatever they just said about dreams or maps or shoes or like yeah. whatever it is they said, they're, they're like really proud that they just found out a way to say it. Yeah. And Ophelia, <laughs> by using this sort of truncated yeah. language that is falling apart, is one of the only Shakespeare characters that she feels like a little bit more, like you could point to a person and go, that's an Ophelia. Yeah. You know, easier mm-hmm. when you would go, oh, that's a Henry V. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she has a level of authenticity because she cannot or refuses to use language in this presentational way. Yeah, I would agree with you. I would use game instead of presentation. But I think they're quite similar. Like you could say she refuses to 
flaunt her language as a performance. Mm. Or she doesn't ever use hyperbole. She doesn't exaggerate. She doesn't brag. She doesn't boast. And if you can't make those modes of expression work for you, you're going to get trampled by everyone else's linguistic wildebeests, which is what happens to her. Does that idea of language of, of language as a, a survival tool have to do with to you your experience of like coming from the South to the Midwest and like not having the same language as everyone else? Well, that's an interesting idea. I will say that I think what, the one thing that growing up in the South did maybe give to me as an adult after childhood in the South, what was this kind of innate pre-verbal understanding of what I really can't describe otherwise than original sin, the sin of slavery and also of Jim Crow and of white supremacy. Um, One of the really interesting things about the recent, like the very recent conversation about race in the country is I think the tone has shifted from like racism to the far more specific term of white supremacy. And I'm really glad (laughs) that things are being framed Mm -hmm. in that way because that's, that is what, uh, that's what the South is. But that's, it's not just in the South, of course, it's everywhere. It's a national sin, but in, in the South, you're very aware of it. Because everyone goes, you know, John's dad took the trouble to take him to the battlefield, and that was maybe slightly unusual, but, like, boy, every kid in the South that I know of went to battlefields and had history lessons. And so you just you just grow up knowing about something extremely bad that a lot of people's families were implicated in. You know, my family, I had a lot of family members that were in the Confederacy. And for some people, it was a source of pride and still is. But for my family, luckily, my family was not a source of pride for my family. And, you know, I was not raised like that. In a lot of Southern writers, like particularly like somebody like Flannery O'Connor, you see kind of rampant sin, inescapable evil, things like that, things that can't be overcome, like putting things in a biblical term. One of the reasons that I wrote this whole most recent trilogy and put it in a Greek setting is because I feel like the Greeks have a concept of fate, of being born into something that you can't escape that resonates a little bit with with a Southern identity of being born into a place that has such deep scars that you just can't opt out of. You can't raise your hand and say, this had nothing to do with me. That's how being from the South has affected me. Okay, in the recent trilogy, which is about Theseus, the Minotaur, Pasiphae, like everybody was locked in this like tragic, but also very weird mythology, which led to the Minotaur being created. Yeah. There's a lot of jokes, but there's obviously, like, also there's a lot of boasting. Like, nobody seems to be able to get out of their thing. Yeah. Because they're wrapped up in boasting. They're wrapped up in this language. Yeah. If I remember correctly, like, the Minotaur is like, I love my house. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Look how big it is. Right. Doesn't even see it as a prison and doesn't see the people who are victims as victims. Nobody involved sees that language that they're involved in as being limiting or their their roles as being limiting. And then what we see them as ridiculous because you make them mm-hmm. ridiculous in the way that you present them. For you, this relates to 
a culture of like ignorance and boasting and being trapped in language that you experience in real life. It's not a culture. It belongs to humanity. It's not like a condition. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, with the first one, the first, what the first of the trilogy, this was the first time you made something semi autobiographical. Yeah. And so there was a specificity to it of the South and of, Sort of the church. Yeah, the first one is does have autobiographical references. I grew up watching my dad play church volleyball, and so that's why there's like a volleyball competition theme in that. Right. <laughs> and my dad, who's like a really um, you know gentle man, he was an elementary school principal, and he would play on his church team with all these other you know basically my schoolmates dads who were like deacons at the church or my dentist or lawyers or whatever. But when they would play. In the volleyball game, they would, like, get sweaty and aggressive, and they would shout, and they would, like, stomp and get mad at each other, and they were wearing shorts that were too short because it was the 80s. And <laughs> and I would just, like, look at them, and they would be so far away from, like, the men in suits, you know, ushering you to your pew that I would see on Sunday morning. And so they were this—I was seeing their, like, <laughs> their masculinity, this, like, capacity for aggression that doesn't just belong to men— and so it was like, it wasn't my dad anymore. It was a stranger. and He was able to be like, we're playing volleyball now. Now we can act like this. I know. <laughs> As a kid, I watched my dad play sports. And I bet John mm-hmm. watched uh, his dad play sports because his dad's the daddest dad. <laughs> my dad, <laughs> no. no. There it is. My dad knows nothing of sports. And I've never seen him play a single sport. Okay, then sports. I'm wrong about that. So, yeah. Other than that, it's very dad. Your dad was so dad, he didn't need sports. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. He transcended. <laughs> the thing for me that's interesting about that is that I did see the way he acted during the game as a completely seamless extension of the way he acted. But I also think that that mm. is because... I was a boy, and so two things were true. One was he maybe felt, like, more open about being, like, sort of, like, competitive and angry around me Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. when things happened. And also I could see the competitive and angry side of situations very easily because that was natural to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I could easily see, like, my sister... Because she is, like, she's super nice. Like, she's, she's like, one of the nicest people on the planet. Mm-hmm. I could see her not seeing the the coding underneath his normal everyday behavior that that pointed in that direction that I related to so easily. Like, I remember one time somebody was on the... Andy Freiser, our art dealer, yeah. <laughs> called me up, and he was talking about, like, somebody who wanted to do, like, a... It was a really, it was a, it was a shady deal they wanted to do, you know, like they wanted to be like, oh, they want to put your art in this thing, but they don't really want to pay you that much. And they want to do that. And I remember like somehow the conversation just gotten on the phone. So I was being really, I was being aggressively like, this is a fucking stupid idea. I wasn't mad at, at Andy because Andy was yeah. like, yeah, it's stupid. But I was yeah. like, you fucking tell them that blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, and I was on the phone, like walking around just like a regular neighborhood doing that. And like, I was with one of our friends and she was like, I've never seen you get that angry. It's like a whole different side of you. And I was like, that's me. Like somebody goes, Hey, we're going to put your art in a barn and there's not, you're not making any money and you know, whatever. Yeah. I like, I'm going to get mad like that. I wasn't like, I was revealing a hidden part of myself. Like to me, that was just like, that's what you do, you know? Like, yeah. and it, and to her, that would be a big shift. And the only thing I can compare yeah. it to is 
Sean McCarthy, who's also at the Fraser Gallery, talked about how the different way that like he reacts when a woman cries than to mm-hmm. way that women do. And mm-hmm. he's like, crying is like an abrupt and radical transformation of the whole day. Yeah. I would have to have had apocalyptically terrible experience to suddenly be crying. Yeah. I don't understand what crying has to do with chocolate or yeah. or or rain or you, your shoe doesn't fit like those things like what the hell like it's like volleyball in here um whereas like i think like for a lot of people who are like socialized that that's okay like mm-hmm. that's totally seamless with their experience they're like i was upset and this is happening this is happening and then i cried that makes perfect sense it's really funny because i cried on the phone with andy once like i um oh, no. this was not was Maybe he like, two years they ago. want to put your art in a barn? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same, same fucking scam, man. <laughs> well, so like, so I think I was just under some stress and something hadn't turned out the way we wanted. And I was kind of like, <laughs> and Andy was like, Mary, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to, and he was like, <laughs> yeah, and he, and, um, he, he like went into it. like complete protection mode. Did it work? Did he fix it? Because if he did, <laughs> make you feel better. Because if he did, I'm going to call him up and cry like as soon as we're done with the interview. <laughs> Zach, I'm afraid it's the kind of thing that art dealers can't fix for artists. God damn it! Yeah. <laughs> you can't make a major museum buy your work. <laughs> well, nobody else can. <laughs> if it was possible for a dealer to fix it, Andy would have, because yeah. he's great. But yeah, it's really funny, like. Just sometimes uh, biology just steps in and organizes everything for you. But so I'm trying to kind of piece together your point about your dad and your sister. So are you saying that like when you saw your dad like in kind of macho sports mode, it didn't ever strike you as being a disconnect with like the normal happy dad that you knew? Yeah, it Like did. you always knew that there was this dark side <laughs> Well, to me, it wasn't dark. It's like that, yeah. like, to me, it was like a, a seamless extension of that's what you do, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that's part of the the spectrum of how, you know, like, you've got to, mm-hmm. if you're playing s- softball, you've got to win. <laughs> and if the first baseman's not putting it in their part, then they better, yeah. you know? Like, I mean, obviously, I didn't see your dad play volleyball, so maybe your dad playing volleyball is an unbelievable psycho. No, he's just having an effect on her. It was in her art years later. But I do think that, like, it's very easy for be like, oh, this is a game, and in the game we John see me do the uh, the soapbox derby. You do soapbox derby. Yeah, Uh, you are you are like the king of subculture. (laughs) (laughs) It was based off. Well, yeah, it was right after right after uh, we had our steampunk ballooning uh, event, and then we all went jet skiing, and then before that, we had just. We had just done when, a lot when, of swing dancing. When, so, no, none of that. Uh, okay, I'm yeah. on to you now. <laughs> when my dad was little, he he did soapbox racing, and oh. so I brought it to my friends, and Zach was an expert. Did you want to talk about that, Zach? <laughs> I just think I developed a reputation as the villain of the, yes. of the soapbox derby, despite never having the meanest car or, you know, ever having, you know, I just happened to I play hard. I want to win. <laughs> well, you know, I think... I think girls, and, you know, I'm talking about, to go back, I had no idea we would talk so much about being from the South means to me, but maybe this is more emphasized in the South where 
girls are raised in a very girly way. Mm-hmm. If you do any kind of athletics, it's, you know, ballet, gymnastics. Um, although I did play basketball for my church, but it was very girly basketball, and I still managed to break my forearm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and, okay, the way I broke my forearm, because this is all about, like, <laughs> aggression and stuff, <laughs> is one of the dads, the dads, again, it's like they were coaching us, and the dad was trying to, like, teach us how to fake a pass. And he, like, fake passed at me, and I, like, didn't think he was going to pass. But then he, like, threw the ball at me really hard, and it actually fractured my arm. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Fucking patriarchy, man. (laughs) And fucking then another fucking level of patriarchy because my my father wouldn't believe that I had actually fractured my arm. He was like, it was a week later. (laughs) But I think girls are not, at least... Me personally, and probably I don't want to like paint with too broad of a brush, but like not really encouraged to um, get in touch with their aggressive side. So when they do encounter it, they don't encounter it in themselves. They encounter it in somebody else first. It's kind of an object of fascination and and fear maybe. And so when, when we did the trilogy, that's one of the reasons I wanted to be the monster. Even though the Minotaur in our films isn't a particularly aggressive monster, she does actually kill and eat people. I wanted to be monstrous. I wanted to be something worth being scared of. That, that part of leads it. me to a question I wanted to ask about all your movies, which is, do they ever have heroes? Like, do you ever think of anyone as, as that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really funny because um, about two years ago, Pat and I did a show with this nice curator named Daniel Belasco in New Paltz, and he wrote a catalog essay. And at that time, we had only made Priapus. And at the end of Priapus, he just kind of stalks off all cocky into the labyrinth. And Daniel wrote in his essay about how this was the first character that I hadn't knocked off in some awful way. And I had to write Daniel and be like, Daniel, I just haven't finished the trilogy yet. (laughs) He's going to get it. (laughs) But I was thinking, like, in in the classical trilogy that we just finished, like, who would be the hero? And I think it might be Pasiphae because she's the person who gets what she wants, which is, of course, to Mm -hmm. have sex with a bull. To have sex with a bull, and she gets it um, out of her willpower and her position as queen, and and of course she pays a really terrible price, but uh, she does get what she wants. But in a way, like all your characters pay a terrible price as soon as they show up because they're immediately (laughs) ridiculous. Like the the price they have to pay is they're in a Mary Reed Kelly video, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like it's it's like it's kind of you know I mean it's like wall to wall. It's all yeah. it's all critical. It's all farce. It's all. Like, I, I was watching the videos, and my daughter was in the room, uh-huh. so she was sort of watching over my shoulder. And she said to me, "I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or if I'm supposed to be scared." <laughs> How She's old nine. is your daughter? Nine. She just turned nine. Yeah, I'm being like a dad. I was like, however you want to feel. It's yeah, like, <laughs> but she framed it that way, like. But she's know. old enough to. Well, because she looked because once and like this, the costumes were scary. She just yeah. got like, get out of here! I don't want to watch this. And then she's yeah. like, she came back again, and she was curious again. Yeah. yeah. What do you have to say to my daughter about that one? Several times we have got to see kids watch the films and um, it's always like incredibly fascinating because they're so unedited. And I I would say that like under six, once in a while they'll be scared, but under six, they're just kind of like 
staring at it, maybe fascinated by it. Of course, they're not listening to it at all. They're just looking at it. And then when they're older, they're like, why is, why is it like this? Why is it like that? And I think that question from your daughter is like pretty advanced for a nine-year-old. Yeah. I don't know. Well, framing it that way, like, am I supposed to be scared? Am I supposed to be? Well, laughing? we do look at a lot of artwork. She's my yeah. daughter. So right. She's very advanced. <laughs> but I, I think <laughs> actually that like, am I supposed to laugh or be scared is like actually a really clean definition of the kind of weird that like surrealism and David Lynch mm. like mm-hmm. filmmaking like that like there's a certain kind of weird that is usually an, framed as kind of arty that is exactly that it's not definitely funny and it's not definitely scary it's both mm-hmm. or at the same time like mm-hmm. that emotional pitch is very specific to what i think we think of as a certain kind of art mm-hmm. a goal of art yeah like in this last century if you took a David Lynch movie and you took out everything that might be funny, it's a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And if you took out everything that might be scary, it's a comedy. Right. You know, and then when they fail, they're just one or the other. Like, it's like, oh, that was a bad joke and it didn't land. Or like, that was yeah. supposed to be scary and it wasn't. But when yeah. you walk that line between scary, funny, then that's like, that's that David Lynch feeling. And I think mm-hmm. that the uncanny often, it's like that exact emotional thing that Helena was trying to describe. I think that the category that it, you know, the videos really firmly belong into, and so does David Lynch and a lot of other stuff is, is the grotesque and the grotesque doesn't just mean like Gothic or like maggots coming out of an eyeball. I think the grotesque, it's essentially a hybrid and it can be a hybrid of a couple different things, but it essentially the, the grotesque is a classification that people had to make out of convenience because it didn't fit into an either-or type of schematic. So it's not a comedy, it's not a horror, it's tragic comedy, and tragic comedy is, is a grotesque. I also think a, a thing about a gr- the grotesque things is that it triggers just enough familiarity with real life or with real mm-hmm. experiences that mm-hmm. it is capable of, of evoking that. You know, like it yeah. isn't just abstractly... Right. weird it's like you makes you think about the body in a strange way like uh mm-hmm. like the like the way you did like the pubic hair on the <laughs> on the characters in the classical trilogy it's like mm-hmm. it's grotesque like because because mm-hmm. you look at it and you're like that is a suit but it's also <laughs> fucking disturbing you know like yeah immediately it goes right to that place and then no matter what sure. they say while they have that it's grotesque like mm-hmm. it, it renders any kind of rhetoric you put on top of it grotesque. Mm-hmm. And so it actually gives you a lot of freedom because you can talk about a lot of different things because mm-hmm. you're, it's always going to be grotesque. And yeah. it's like, look, everything can be grotesque. I was visiting with a student, uh, this was a couple weeks ago, and she was making these like clay um, sculptures that were like clearly some kind of vagina dentata cabinet of horrors, Venus flytrap stuff. And I, and I use the word grotesque and she just visibly recoiled and was, she was like, no. And I, I immediately <laughs> okay. like, was like trying to make it up to her. And I was like, uh, went into like panic ex- explanation of like what the grotesque is. And I was like, well, I was like, sweetheart, the grotesque is very close to the ideal. (laughs) I know. I like, I went into um, Southern sweetheart mode. Um, Well, because like the ideal, 
the grotesque is a step away from reality. It's a step into a more heightened register of expression and experience that therefore has a metaphorical relationship to reality. It's not a picture of reality. It's a metaphor for reality. And so, you know, you, you can have like a picture of an angel and that's the ideal, or you can have a picture of like one of Satan's devils. And we all know that that's grotesque, but they're both, you know, steps away from humanity. And I did, it didn't help with the student. I think I just, I ruined her um, education probably. It's super <laughs> weird when you describe a piece of art to a student with an adjective you think fits it and they yeah. don't get that at all. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not saying that they're stupid. It's It might be your stupid. It's just like the, the disconnect. Right. Like I remember saying it was one girl's drawings. I was like, you're obviously like trying to like reference a certain sort of like naive little girl drawing with these. And she uh-huh. was like, What? And I was like, oh, God, like maybe like that to her was, I don't know. Um, yeah. But I, I wanted to ask about A.C. Swinburne because uh. you did one piece that is probably like the easiest to describe piece for somebody who's listening to this and hasn't actually seen the videos. Basically what you did almost is like you took an A.C. Swinburne poem and kind of made it into an, a music video, but it's a poem. It's not music, you know, yeah. but I mean, if once somebody wants to describe in the simplest way possible to someone who had never seen one of your movies, uh, films, how, what they are, it's kind of like you're animating a poem, not necessarily always literally animating, but you're create, you know, you're doing with poetry kind of almost what a music video does with music. Mm-hmm. You're like showing the themes and you're kind of having people say the lines and doing both. But also like AC, the AC Swinburne piece made, made you think, wow, you really like AC Swinburne a lot. I do. I do too, but I... He's my jam. The main knock against him was like, well, he just does this dazzling wordplay and there's no meaning behind it. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to talk about like what... Like just let's talk about A.C. Swinburne. Let's talk about some Victorian poets. You brought up a very common criticism, um, which T.S. Eliot made that criticism, Ezra Pound made the criticism, and A.E. Hausman made the criticism that it was all words. And actually, so what T.S. Eliot said was, and it was kind of like T.S. Eliot, he's unfortunately also one of my weirdo heroes, and uh, he was like the king of the backhanded compliment. And so his backhanded compliment to Swinburne was that Swinburne's work is limited because his only real subject is language and literature. So it's not like about like real life. It's like this hermetic library. It's like his work smells like the dust of the library and it, it only exists there. It has nothing to tell you about actual love or life or anything. But he said only a real genius could live entirely in that world as Swinburne did. Um, so he was complimenting. So Swin- Swinburne is like a very facile linguistic poet. I I got into him because I don't read French and I was very interested in Baudelaire and Baudelaire's ideas. And of course I read Baudelaire in translation, but Swinburne is, is a very close, he really shared a lot of Baudelaire's ideas, like notably the idea for, of art for art's sake. Swinburne really idolized Baudelaire. And in fact, at one point, Swinburne's younger than Baudelaire by maybe 20 years or so. And at one point, uh, rumor reached England that Baudelaire had died. So Swinburne writes this like enormous, long, long, long poem uh, in tribute of 
Baudelaire, and it turned out uh, Baudelaire hadn't died after all. Um, but then he had the poem just <laughs> just in case. So that, you know, when Baudelaire really did die of syphilis, then he was ready with it. Baudelaire is like the I I have a weird distinction in my mind between soulfulness and soullessness. And soulfulness is like I've had experiences, and then I've created dark art about it, and you can relate because I, I speak with the voice of experience, you know. Yeah. And then soullessness is like I haven't had experiences and I'm going to make dark art, and that in itself is disturbing and shocking, and I'm going mm. to use that, dis- that the fact that that disturbs and shocks you as the subject, and that in itself kind of creates a new depth. Uh, yeah. I always thought of Baudelaire as being like, sort of like Baudelaire's like the, the brooding one, and then Swinburne comes along, he's like, this is great what you're doing, let's do this! Like, could you, what if we did it 50 times? What if we did it 150 times? And, and yeah. Baudelaire's like, w- whatever, man. He's like, pedals! Let's get pedals! And he's like, what if we, we would distortion and we put a delay here? And, and, we could, and, 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 and he's like, yeah, just whatever, just as long as your set is yeah. done for me to go on at 10, that's whatever. He's like, this yeah. is gonna be awesome! You're awesome! It's gonna yeah. be amazing! Have you thought about, you know, like, he just seems like the hyper, whatever Baudelaire uncovered, he was like, yeah, yeah. let's... Let's just do, that'll be, that'll be amazing. I can't improve on that uh, <laughs> description at all. But the, the really important thing is that, so what you're describing is like Baudelaire and Gautier and, and like Hugo and like basically the French, Swinburne's like a very early, very important interpretation of French ideas and French literature. And he like takes it to like, like a point where basically nobody else wants to go. Yeah, like 11. Um, He's like... <laughs> <laughs> but then it, that had really very paralyzing consequences for poetry. And Ezra Pound said, he, he's, I think he said it later when he was describing like basically the state of English poetry circa 1910, which was, where do we go from Swinburne? Because you can't out-Swinburne Swinburne. You can only do something totally different. <laughs> It's like when Slayer did their fastest album ever. Then, then South of Heaven is like slower because, like, I felt like that. Like, as growing up listening to music, is like nobody's ever gonna be crazier than than anal cunt. And then well, the next generation was like, "You're right. We're not yeah. gonna be that crazy anymore. We're gonna sing about missing our girlfriend again." You know, yeah. like it kind of dialed back. He's a terminal artist. Like, you can't go farther than him. And I think a lot, a lot of like who you are as an artist is just dictated to you by where you are in that food chain. <laughs> and personally, like when we started making video, I was just so much happier because like when I was doing the text paintings, it was an Ed Ruscha painting and then it was a Jenny Holzer painting and then I was ripping off Carol Walker. And so like painting is an extremely crowded field, as you well know. And so I was just much happier in video because it's a much younger medium. But poetry, like painting, it goes in these long stretches and you take things to a certain point and then, and then everyone has to like have a crisis and start all over. Hmm. But then you're a poet. So when you found yourself writing poems, did you have a crisis and go, well, it's not, it's not like extreme enough in any direction, so it has to be a video? Or are you, like, where does it... I was I was really only ever writing for a script purposes or at the very, very beginning, just fucking around. I don't consider what I write poetry. I write scripts. No, now we're arguing. All right. <laughs> These are very stagey. Like, this is a character who's dressed up in a, in a completely unconvincing costume 
delivering lines and we are listening to the lines. Yeah, kind of. Although I consider, I consider what I do writing verse and I consider it to be very connected. I consider it to be occasional verse (laughs) as in verse. It's like Garrison Keillor every, every Sunday he writes, you know, some songs and some crazy shit for a Prairie Home Companion or actually somebody that I really admire, Harry Shearer who has this crazy podcast and he's writing all of these songs that are parodies and he does all these weird voices, but it's all his own voice. And that's topical. It's occasional um, because it's a political podcast and he's a cultural critic. And so that that's what he's doing. Or like a rapper, like hurrying up to get a diss track out uh, while it's still relevant. So I really consider my work that, it, yes, it's it's in verse, it rhymes, but it's... It's occasional verse, and it has to be performed. So is it kind of like the text equivalent of, like, illustration? Zach, Zach, don't you think that illustration is one of those words that makes art students cry? Yes, but but I need a word to make every kind of person cry. The highest ambition is to do the job rather than to create a new thing on its own and interpret it that way. It seems like you're trying to say, I'm using all the techniques of poetry, but I want to do a specific job that words can do rather than to stand on its own. The video as a whole is art. Yeah. You know, nobody has ever made that analogy of like occasional verse or what I'm writing to illustration. And even though I'm like getting that art student reaction (laughs) against (laughs) illustration, I have to think that you're correct. And we all know, and you particularly who have worked with text and making works like your Gravity Rainbow work, which is like highly tied to a literary work. Yeah. We all know that these distinctions between like um, high art like painting and then a, a lower tier art like illustration, like those distinguish, it's just bullshit because, you know, genius work is genius work, whether it's illustration or painting. And W.H. Auden did several anthologies. He was great for anthologies and he did a really great on- anthology of English comic verse. And he basically says in his in his introduction, which is fantastic, that comic verse is totally overlooked. And we just, we think that the poets who kind of, they're like wasting, if they're really talented and they're writing comic verse, they're wasting their time. They should be writing serious verse, not trying to make us laugh or make puns or things like that. Just get no respect. I guess I wasn't talking about the words. I was talking about the way you're describing them. I think when you say something is comic verse, for example, to use it something that's not, if it makes us laugh, it's done its job. And then if it then goes on beyond that to be great art, it's great, but it's almost kind of bonus points at that point. So if you give somebody a poem and you go, oh, it's just supposed to be funny. Yeah. Or if you give someone a drawing and you go, oh, it's just a cartoon, so it's supposed to be funny, you're controlling expectations mm-hmm. so that they don't, they don't think that you think that it's supposed to be also awesome by itself. It's yeah. just supposed to do a job. And once it does that job, you're happy. And then you like cross your fingers. You go, well, if you think it's genius, then I'll take it. And it seems like what you're saying about your, your writing is that you want to say, well, it does a job in the video that verse does. But it's not like the the video as a whole is what's aiming for this for the moon, whereas that's just aiming to be like fulfill a certain role that that words have mm. to fulfill. Yeah, I think that I'm very uh, 
effect oriented, like a like a special effect. Like I I want a, a certain effect on the audience, a linguistic effect that obviously is not possible in painting. Right. And I want it to be some like seasick regurgitation dizziness that happens because of the puns. And so you're right that the verse or the poetry or whatever you want to call it is kind of a workhorse in the context of the videos. The seasick question is actually interesting because something that your verse as in the video does that no poem that's written does is it races ahead of our ability to parse it and understand it mm-hmm. so that like i'll i'll hear lines and go oh that's a good line and then i can't remember it because i'm trying to take in the yeah, next line exactly. it's so yeah. dense that you've created a flow of, and if you were a poet that expected your poems to be written as words and that was the primary people way we would take it in you wouldn't want to mm-hmm. do that to people you would want them you would want to give it enough space that we each line was totally appreciated yeah. whereas yeah. you much seem like to be a, like, much like a good rapper Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep up with them. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's like you're up to a certain, like you're four lines ahead and then you're like right. the third line part of it is resonating. So when you describe it as, as an effect rather than a thing in itself. The wordplay um, more than the speed or the rhyme is one of, is I think the thing that does that because when you stop to like point at the joke and be like, that's a joke, you're four yes. lines later in the film. Yeah, you're. Yeah. And that's why they're short. So hopefully you can watch something twice if you're motivated. The other thing that we do, we try to do is give people the text. And that's kind of right. a gesture to the overwhelmed feeling. And also because, you know, they are kind of carefully written and there are puns that work better on the page than in the sound. And so some of the jokes come off better when you're reading them. But I just, I really love in the museum context or in the gallery context, people like curators are like super desperate to empower the audience and like give them experiences, which I think is bullshit because when I, I really want to be totally consumed by someone else's vision. You want to be lost. Yeah. And it's essentially people I think are losing touch with like the power of, a passive experience like when you are when you're just sitting there quietly looking or listening or holding the book up in front of yourself and it's like yourself dissolves into the power of whatever it is that you're experiencing like I don't understand what's lacking in that experience that like people are like trying to drum up this kind of song and dance and like community interaction and like things like that it's like a really great painting is interactive because mm-hmm. when you, I remember Zach, the last show that you had in New York and um, I went to it after it opened and it was just drawings tacked on the wall. And I walked in and Andy said, go over there and put your face in that one. Yeah, I and it was a big black and white drawing. And it was it, in the middle was this oh, drawing awesome. of a woman who was no bigger than my hand. And I think she was kind of like splayed out nude and his his description of like go put your face in that like don't don't like hey this this painting's ex- nice yeah. like he said go put your face in that that's like <laughs> and of course that's what i did and like i think you just i love putting my face in stuff like like what else do you need mm-hmm. and so like when we're making something it's like 
you, you generally, video artists love to talk about how they're breaking out of the black box. I love the black box because then you have to put your whole body into somebody's piece. Mm-hmm. The installation at the hammer is black box. You walk in there, it's a couch, you sit down, you dissolve into the womb of the blackness, and you hopefully lost. mind meld <laughs> with what you're looking at. And That's I just, a great way of putting it. People like are like so intent on maintaining their illusion of their individuality and their personhood that they like what they don't want to let go of it in the context of an art museum, which is like the safest place you can be. You know, you're not like you're not going into a trance on on in the middle of Manhattan or something. You're <laughs> we're all in a safe space. Like, well, I just think it's an unfortunate like trying to take up a battle with wider things that are going on in culture like yeah. that, you know the museum can be the museum we don't have to like compete with <laughs> you know interactive multimedia whatever so it's like you know how they say like the best selling books are self help books i think that there's an attempt to turn especially now that you know with the kinds of jobs people have nowadays to turn every activity you do into a form of self-improvement. Like you're watching right. the news. If you're watching the news, that means you're learning about the world. You're learning about the yeah. world. You can use that in your work. You can use that to build your personal brand. Everything right. you do is relevant, you know, right. and, and to, to the project of you being bigger. And it's because we're all scared in a competitive world yeah. that you're not getting better at shit. You're not, yeah. you're not going right. to be able to compete. And so I think if you pick up, you have the most like passive, most classical experience with a work of art, a completely lyrical, completely atopical poem yeah. from an era that you've never been in, you never will be in. Just saying mentally to yourself, you're on vacation. Yeah. This is going to be vacation yeah. right yeah. now. Right. And you are maybe you'll get something out of it. But it will not be something that is immediately relevant to how you're going to respond to your family, your friends, or the social conditions around you, or racism, or anything else. It's just like, this is deep, pure research. Mm-hmm. I think for everyone, the ability to go, I'm taking a break, is harder. And I think that a lot of art has responded by trying to look less like a break. Like, yeah, it's like, like more work. like, and the museum tries to make art, art look like it's not a break. Like, it's like... You know, no, like we're looking at this artist because of this and this and this and this and this. And to some degree, I can empathize with the problem. Like we've all had a thing where you're like, I would love to just pick that book up. I I don't even know what is Dryden even write. I don't know. Maybe I should pick up that book one day. But then you're like, yeah, but then someone's tweeting about something and it might be important. (laughs) I might have to do something about it tomorrow. You know, like we're And I'll miss it if I'm not on. Yeah, but I mean, there's a sense of sometimes it's very relevant because we're in an age where where things are valuable for a short period of time and then they cease to be and it's and and things are time sensitive. And so I think we become hyper attuned to things that might have some relevance to them because we're all like in a a really uncertain situation. Whereas I think in earlier times, I think people could say like the way things are now, they'll be like this for 50 more years. You know, like if this works today, it'll work tomorrow. Art has, has lots of different strategies for dealing with that sense of urgency, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. like some art responds by like make trying to compete with it directly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that can be done well, but I think other art says like, look, you're not going to get anything out of me if you cling on to that sense that art has to always be participating in your project. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in defense of like 
curators or institutions, like that is a very hard sell. We're a giant money-sucking organization whose benefits are entirely unclear. I mean, it's like, the, it's like the zoo. It's like when you go to the zoo and you only see kids there. It's like, <laughs> it's like the zoo is awesome for everyone. Yes. Yeah. Adults mm-hmm. should be at the zoo. You know, right. like just to go, Not just Twitter, to see the bill. The you know, Rilke went to the zoo. Nabokov went to the zoo. They saw things. But people go because they they take their kids because they're like, yeah, that is a function it can provide. You know, right. this monkey will babysit my child, you know, <laughs> and that is kind of sad because it's like, you know, you should just look at animals. They're beautiful. On that note. Monkeys are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> monkeys are beautiful. Here we have chipmunks. Yes. <laughs> those are our beauty. Yeah. Well, but thanks, guys. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you, John. Thank you, Zach. Hey, thank you guys for being on. Thanks <sighs> for chit-chatting with us. Thank you, Justin. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Justin. Right. Woo! Woo! Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guests, Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly. We are very happy to announce that Mary was just awarded the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. Congratulations, Mary. Also, I have more of my artwork in my Tumblr at the pin. Or just Google John Mahias. And Zach has a new book with John Amiibo coming up October 4th. Next podcast, we'll be talking to Mark Thomas Gibson. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. Weed Art is sponsored by No One. Yet. And is produced by Papin and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Genius work is genius work, whether it's illustration or painting. Well, if you think it's genius, then I'll take it. 